Good morning. The pastors had decided that we wanted to talk about and preach about the Holy Spirit for a while. And my job this morning is to talk about the Holy Spirit and the assurance of salvation. And it's interesting as I've as I'm thinking about speaking this morning and as I think about uh, talking about the Holy Spirit, as we talk about the Holy Spirit, we often talk about him theoretically and sometimes we talk about him experientially. And it's an interesting thing if you stop and ponder for a second that the Holy Spirit is here. He's right here. And so when we talk about him, theoretically, how do we keep ourselves connected to the fact that he's right here with us right now? He's in this room. He's in our hearts, as many as have him. And so I want us to prepare ourselves in that way. You know, I'm going to be talking about some things this morning that have been uh, some themes that have made me very, um, at one time I said to somebody, I'm just very pumped as I'm reading this. I don't know how to say it otherwise, but I can't get you to see that. I can't pump you up when it comes to the themes of God's word. You need to have his spirit let you hear what he says and then you need to believe it and it needs to fill you and give you faith and cause you to overflow because he has given us good things this morning and he's given us good things last Sunday and he's given us good things all this week and we need God's Holy Spirit so I'm going to be talking about the believer's assurance of salvation and the Spirit's work in that assurance. And I want us to leave here this morning understanding how we can have assurance of our salvation. But when I'm all done, I'm not sure I'll tell you how in a way that you expect that I'm going to tell you how. So listen. Listen to what God says in his word. We're going to go down a map I told my daughter this morning, my sermon is long. She said, well, why don't you cut some chunks out of it? I said, well, it's like a map going from Michigan to Florida. If you cut out a chunk, I'll try to cut out things that I'll try to cut out all the sightseeing excursions along the way. How's that? Romans 8 verses 1 through 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. 
For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Well, this is a familiar passage, particularly the part about calling God Father, Abba, Father. And oftentimes when we preach, and we're not wrong for preaching this emphasis, we emphasize the fact that the term is a term of endearment, Abba. It is a term of endearment. It's right for us to acknowledge that. But in this text, the basic most important thing that is being shown is a contrast. A contrast between those who have been slaves and those who are sons. You see, it's not simply that we're calling God Abba, a term of endearment, as opposed to what we would call him if he were our father, but we didn't call him a term of endearment, right? Like Pops or Daddy-O. Right. It's that we call him father. We call him Abba as opposed to calling him master. As his slave. He has received us as sons. And so this is about God's adoption of us. The Bible says that we were received as sons specifically in verse 15, because it shows us something important. It's not that women aren't included. They are included in the scope of this application of the adoptive term. There are specific benefits that we must understand as applying to all who are in Christ. Benefits normally designated exclusively for male children. Specifically, that they are heirs. That they are heirs. While in this world, in our homes, in the church, in the culture, we are rightly differentiated by age, by sex, by nationality, by all the different positions of authority. This is right. But in our standing before God the Father, in Jesus Christ, God the Son, one, we are one in our adopted sonship, male and female, Jew and Greek, slave and free. That's what Galatians 3 says. It's not saying that there is no authority on earth. It's saying that in Christ we are one, adopted in God, and heirs. 
Abraham's descendants, Galatians 3:29 says, heirs according to the promise. How is it that we can be adopted sons? The particular benefit, according to Galatians, is that we are going to be heirs according to the promise made to Abraham. And he references this earlier in the chapter when he says, even so, this is Galatians 3, 6, even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that Abraham would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. And down to verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, excuse me, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, this, this passage in Galatians is referring to a passage, a passage in the Old Testament. God made a lot of promises to Abraham in the Old Testament. You can read them on several occasions as he's talking to Abraham. But this particular one comes from Genesis 22:18, And it says, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now, of all the times that God made, it, made promises to Abraham, why was this one, the one chosen by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to be referenced here in this text? Well, it was because of the circumstances surrounding the giving of this promise. And the circumstances were Abraham's call to go and sacrifice his son Isaac to the Lord. And if you remember the story, Abraham went, took his son, they went up on a mountain, they built the pyre of, is it a pyre before you ignite it? Pile of wood. And his son said, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will do what? God will provide. And so what happens? Abraham lifts the knife and just at that time God says, no, wait. I've provided. And over here there's a ram in the thicket and they take the ram and they sacrifice it. Well, Isaac was the child of faith, correct? Ishmael was the child of Abraham's flesh, his, his desire to make himself an offspring without God's help. Isaac was the one that was the child of the promise, brought miraculously to his parents. But this sacrifice, as it, as it was being played out on the mountain, required that God provide a substitute, a substitute for the child of promise. Now, Isaac was Abraham's seed, right? He was Abraham's seed. He was Abraham's child. He was his descendant. But was Isaac the seed of the promise? Was he the seed of the promise? 
Isaac was not the fulfillment of this promise. Isaac was protected from physical death by God's provision of a substitute sacrifice. The whole scene was just a shadow play. It was just a type, an analogy for what would be coming down the road. In fact, in Hebrews, it says that in talking about Abraham's faith, it says that he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him, that is Isaac, back as a type. As a type. Isaac was a type. He was not the antitype. Now, this word confuses me. But an antitype, it sounds counterintuitive. An antitype is something that is foreshadowed by a type. Isaac was not the antitype. He was the type. He was protected from physical death by God's provision of the ram, but a greater substitute was coming. This substitute, the one that was coming, would be the seed through which the blessings of Abraham would be distributed. His sacrifice would not be interrupted. Isaac and Abraham finally would be themselves protected from, phys- from spiritual death by the provision that would come through the promised seed. Isaac was not the seed to whom the promise would come. Jesus is the seed to whom the promise came. Jesus was the antitype foreshadowed by Isaac in Genesis. Those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. How? By God's making us physical descendants of Abraham? Like Isaac? No. By God's making us spiritual descendants of Abraham by faith. Like Isaac. But not like Isaac in the physical sense. What was the nature of the promise that was made to Abraham? Did did God say to Abraham, all the nations will be blessed by you? All the nations will be blessed in you. Genesis 22:18. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In Jesus, not by Jesus. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. The first verse of our primary text this morning. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ, recipients of Abraham's promise. What agent does this work to us? Who causes us to be in Christ? The verses of our text speak about several benefits that we can have. Adoption, faith, assurance, approval, life, righteousness, immortality, sanctification. These benefits do come as a result of being in Christ, but they are not the agent that sets us apart as being in Christ. Some of us here understand the adoption process. We understand that adoption agencies are necessary. And agents meet with us and they they go there as go-betweens between us and the uh, adopted child. And they, they go and we have to... You know, if you've done this, you have to fill out all the paperwork and, and, uh, and pay the fees, and then you have to have people come into your house and study you. And some of us have done this before. But the agent is the one who does the work 
of bringing together the adopted child to the parent. Who is the agent? But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Romans 9, or Romans 8, 9. However, you are not, and by the way, this is a really good Trinitarian verse. Listen for the Trinity in this, okay? However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. To be in Christ is to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. He is the one who joins us to Christ. This is how the promise to Christ through Abraham would be fulfilled. Everyone to whom the Holy Spirit was given would be in Christ, safe in Christ, like Noah was safe with his family in the ark. 1 Peter 3:18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Noah was brought safely through the death waters in the ark. His deliverance represents a type to us, a foreshadowing of something, a likeness of the deliverance that comes through baptism. Is the baptism referred to here simply the baptism of water getting wet? If it were then the agent of our deliverance would be the baptism or the person who dunked or sprinkled or poured us in baptism. The believer is brought safely through the grave in Christ. Listen to a couple more verses concerning this. Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. Colossians 2. 11. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. It's not simply getting wet. Circumcision was ineffectual if not attended by an inward transformation. A spiritual surgery where Christ removed the body of the flesh. That's what the text says. There is no efficacy to baptism if it is not attended by an inward transformation. The critical component of baptism into into Christ Jesus is Christ's giving to us of his Holy Spirit. And this was something that John the Baptist came as 
as a forerunner to, as he was preaching to the people. He was preaching, in some ways, he was preaching the gospel beforehand, even in the way that the gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand. It wasn't completely visible yet. Jesus hadn't completed his work yet, but with John the Baptist uh, different from Abraham, John was standing right on the edge. I mean, half of his foot was on one side and half on the other, and Jesus was right there with him. And he was talking about something. He said, This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know, and it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he recognized and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Luke 3, verse 18, speaking about John, testifying again about Christ, again about his giving of the Holy Spirit, says, it says in verse 18, So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. It was the gospel. What John was preaching was the gospel. But it was the gospel that still had a veil. I mean, the veil was so thin. It was just so thin that Jesus was right there. It was just about to be taken away. Completely. John was like the conductor at a train station. There's a new t- there's a new train coming into the station. It's not the train of shadows and types. This train has windows. You're going to see God's glory revealed. The engineer is not Moses. It's Jesus, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You see in other examples of this right on the edge of the line in Acts chapter 18, speaking about Apollos, who was preaching, and it said, This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. This is after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. This is after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Apollos preaching about Jesus. But he hadn't been told yet. Right? Acts 19. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed over I'm sorry, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no. 
we have e- we have not even heard whether there was there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him. That is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Sometimes it came out of sequence, and the Holy Spirit happened before the baptism. Peter was told to go and preach to Cornelius in his household. And so Peter went, and he preached to Cornelius in his household. And Peter, I don't even know if he was done preaching yet. The Holy Spirit just boom and filled the place, filled all the, the people in the household. And what did Peter say? Surely no one can refuse the water for those to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, can he? Guess we can baptize them. The Spirit poured out upon them. Last week, Joseph preached about the Holy Spirit's work in regeneration. What was the most difficult point of Joseph's sermon for us to swallow? What was the most difficult point? It was that we couldn't effect or in any way contribute to the regeneration of our hearts. This is the work of God the Holy Spirit. Joseph introduced us to God's sovereignty in our election and salvation. Regeneration can come quietly. The Holy Spirit just comes and makes someone alive. Or it can come with a flood like a torrent on a whole household. And boom, they're ignited with life and fire, filled with the Holy Spirit. So when Peter preached at Pentecost, he held out the offer of being in Christ. The specific promise attending the offer was the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women. I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. And verse 38, Peter, the people are cut to the heart. They're convicted of their sin, and Peter says to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. My goal at the beginning of this sermon was that we would leave here this morning understanding how we can have assurance of our salvation. 
Now, I can answer that by saying we can have assurance of our salvation if we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's not a satisfactory answer to you, is it? You want something else. You want a burning in your bosom. You want a sign. You want to be able to put your hand to it somehow. Let's talk about that for a minute. Because I know we still have questions related to assurance. Some of us here this morning, all of us should, but some of us here this morning are confessing to ourselves, I still sin. Wait a minute, I still sin. How can I still sin and be God's son? And perhaps you're despairing over that. How can I still sin and be God's son? Were you adopted on the basis of your righteousness or on the basis of someone else's righteousness? You were adopted on the basis of Christ's righteousness. If you still sin, you are in Christ righteous before God who has made himself your father. And you can go to your father and confess your sin to him. And by his own testimony, he will forgive you. But you can go because you're in Christ. And you know in Christ, you're in Christ because you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Can I lose my salvation? What if I do get assurance? Can I lose it? Can it go away? Romans 11.29 says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He doesn't take it back. But listen for a minute to something else from John 8, starting at verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son doesn't remain, doesn't, uh, or I'm sorry, the slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. I still sin. The slave sins, right? Are you making this connection? Who's the son? Who's in the house forever? He's the son that makes you free. Who is the son that's in the house forever? Jesus Christ is the son that's in the house forever. How can you be in the house forever? By being in Christ. Like Noah was in the ark. 
How do you know that you're in Christ? Because you have the Holy Spirit given to you, sealing you. A promise. A promise. Can I lose my salvation? Think about it. Are you in Christ? Can you lose your salvation? On the day that God the Father disinherits God the Son, that's the day. Do you understand? That's the day you can lose your salvation. Because you're not in, in Christ. You're not a son of God by virtue of your righteousness. You weren't brought to that place by virtue of your righteousness. You are in Christ. And he is a son in the house forever. Well, I'm still unsure, maybe you're saying. I'm still unsure about whether I'm saved. Am I in, am I in Christ? And you could go to Second Peter and read step by step about the things that we're supposed to add to ourselves, you know, increasing qualities, Add to your faith, add to this, add to this, add to this. And you say, well, Dave, that's great. Finally, a plan that I can work. Finally, something I can do. Finally, something with steps that I can follow. But no, you read the beginning of the chapter before all of that, before it says in your faith, which is a significant statement, and you see the words, to those who have received a faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Another Trinitarian verse, by the way. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. By these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You can't add to your moral excellence knowledge and your knowledge self-control and your self-control perseverance unless you have the Holy Spirit and you're walking by the Holy Spirit. You can't do that in the flesh. You can't do that in the flesh. You might be saying, well, I used to have assurance, but lately I feel as if God has deserted me. I feel as if he's left me. Here's a response to that question from George Whitfield, a preacher used by God in what is called the first great awakening. Quote, now as to the darkness of, des of desertion, was not this the case of Jesus Christ himself after he had had received an unmeasurable unction of the Holy Ghost, was not his soul exceedingly sorrowful even unto death in the garden? And was he not surrounded with an horrible darkness, even a darkness that might be felt when on the cross he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
and that all his followers are liable to the same. Is it not evident from Scripture? For, says the Apostle, he was tempted in all things like we are, so that he himself might be able to succor those who are tempted. And is not their liableness thereunto consistent with that conformity to him in suffering? In other words, aren't we going to go through suffering too and experience what Jesus did? That's our promise. It's made to us. It's in all those precious Bible promise books that we read, right? Do you have that volume? Why then should persons falling into darkness after they have received the witness of the Spirit be any argument against the doctrine of election, of God's sovereign work in persevering us and keeping us? We will go through dark times. What will we do then when we get in the dark times? You know, pump ourselves up, drink more coffee. Get another volume of Joel Osteen's latest book. How will, we, how will we encourage ourselves in the flesh in the dark time? Some of us may feel a good assurance today and may be falsely assured. And like the Pharisees, we would declare our assurance of being God's sons based on our physical baptisms or our being born into a special family or our being an American or our being better in our behavior than most people or our having prayed to ask Jesus into our heart when we were seven. Or maybe we just have faith in our own faith. You know, I believe it. I'm going to believe it. It will be believed by me. I have a question for you. Where is the Holy Spirit? Where is the Holy Spirit? Have you received the Holy Spirit? The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, you might have been thinking, Dave's going to preach a sermon on assurance of salvation, and so he's going to tell me how I can be assured, and I know what he's going to tell me because I've heard that before. But I don't know if you've heard this before, I'm telling you, and it's going to sound simplistic, but listen to me. If you want assurance of your salvation, don't ask God for it. Ask him for the Holy Spirit. You understand? Do you want to evangelize your neighbors? Don't try to work it up in your power to go out and evangelize your neighbors. Don't, don't bake power cookies to evangelize your neighbors. Ask God to give you His Holy Spirit. Look at the New Testament. Look at the early church. They evangelized their neighbors. No problem. Do you want to be free from your love of money? You could, you could just take out the checkbook and just have somebody hold your hand while you write the check. Would you do this for me? Just Is that what happened in the early church? They had the Holy Spirit. Barnabas sold a piece of property. They were doing it all the time. He sold a piece of property. 
It was principle. It was the money earning property, too. It was the hard thing to sell. He sold it. He brought it and brought, put the money down at the apostles' feet. The Holy Spirit was all over that place with people understanding how they would give and how they would live concerning money. In fact, it was so much, the Spirit was so much there. He was so present in the early church and so powerful in what they were doing that when a couple of people decided they would try to do it by the flesh, and they wrote out the check, but it wasn't really for the full amount, and they conspired together that they would give that and that they would say it was the full amount. And they went and laid it at the apostles' feet. What happened? He died. And what was their, what was the, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, accusation? That's not the word I'm thinking. What was the charge against them? You have, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Do you want to be free from your besetting sin? Read the Bible. Do you see all those people bringing their idols into the town square, piling them up, piling on the parchments, piling on the olive oil or whatever, and lighting it up? Free from their besetting sin. Done with it. Why? Because they had the Holy Spirit. He was in them. They were in Jesus, sons of God. They had power. Do you want to practice hospitality? We talk about this, practice hospitality. We're supposed to, right? It's a command. You can do it in the flesh, can't you? Ah, people are going to come over again today. Eat all our food. Look at the early church. They went from house to house, and it was as if Nobody owned anything. They were so generous because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. What else? Do you want to submit to authority? Do you want to overcome sorrow? Do you want to live free from the fear of man, the fear of suffering, the fear of persecution? Every time I read the passage about about the, the believers gladly accepting the confiscation of their property, I think, what? What made them able to, to gladly accept the confiscation of their property? I get angry at election time. Nothing's been taken away. I get mad because they made me pay so much for my garbage collection. But they were glad. Why? They didn't walk in the flesh. They understood what the value of those things was. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were glad to be identifying with Jesus in His suffering. They were glad to do it. Do you want assurance of salvation? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can try to do all these things I've been talking about walking in the flesh. You can try. Good luck. You won't get far. The Holy Spirit. Ask for the Holy Spirit. 
Luke 11, verse 9. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God wants to give you his Holy Spirit. He wants you to be filled with his Holy Spirit. He wants to pour his Holy Spirit on you, into you, through you. He wants this church to be covered and filled with his Holy Spirit. He wants to be glorified as the world watches us live as people filled with the Holy Spirit. He wants us to ask him. And he'll give us the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him. Stand up with me, please. Last week, Joseph said that Ezekiel was brought and shown a field of dry bones. Do you remember? Here we are. A field of dry bones. We need the Holy Spirit. We need him desperately. And Ezekiel said, Ezekiel was told, go and prophesy over that field and speak to those bones. And he did, and flesh grew on them. And then God said, now prophesy that life, breath will go into those bodies. And he did. And life went into the bodies. And And this is what God wants to do for us. If you're here this morning and you are a believer and you have the Holy Spirit, God wants to fill you with his spirit. He wants to continually work with you so that you are set free and set free and set free so that you rise from glory to glory as you are sanctified by faith. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you've heard what I said and you understand the reality that Jesus Christ died to redeem sinners, to save them from the wrath of God, which is justly deserved, a wrath that will be accomplished finally in a literal real hell. If you're here and you want to be free for that, turn and ask God, beg him, please, You are the good Father. Will you save me? Will you make me alive in Jesus Christ? Will you do that? Let's pray.